Although it's perhaps not the best reason to sort of make this argument, one of the ways in which I think that we can know for certain that the Bible is divinely inspired is because it never shies away from sort of displaying the failures of its heroes. One of the things that you'll have to notice as you read through the scriptures, if you just start from Genesis and just read onwards, you'll find a lot of details that would make you shudder. It would make you grimace. You would find a lot of sordid stories. There's a lot of dirty laundry, so to speak, if you read especially the books of the Old Testament and even more specifically if you read the book of Genesis. And perhaps if, if, if the intent of the scriptures was just to demonstrate the chief of morality, if it was just to be a book about that, you would probably not find all of the horrible details that you find in some of these stories. Many times, some of these horrible details, your most f- beloved Bible characters are the ones responsible for. Maybe... One of, the re- one of the ways in which we can know how we are growing up in our faith is just by the fact that you are recognizing that sometimes those awesome Bible characters that used to be on your flannel graph lessons in Sunday school are not always the best role models. And sometimes that's hard to deal with, that's hard to face. But such is the case in our text this morning where Abram or Abraham, and you'll have to forgive me if I keep missing his name appropriately. Here he is called Abram. But regardless, when Abram is caught in a mess of a lie here that blows up in his face in a nearly cost, he and his wife Sarai or Sarah, their lives. In that old saying, Father Abraham learns in a very real, very profound way that it truly is a tangled web that we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's essentially what Abram is learning here. That's what he's given sort of a lesson by way of the school of hard knocks, so to speak. In every single way, this is not Abraham's finest hour. But I think in that, we are given a great picture, a great example of what it truly looks like to live by faith. To live as dependent creatures on a God who loves us despite our flaws and our failures. You see, after a famine strikes his land, Abraham decides to visit Egypt. It makes sense. Egypt is abundant with resources. A famine is almost a death sentence in a society that was built up around agriculture. So he's making this choice to go down to Egypt, as it says, to sojourn there. The theory is is that he could wait out this, this drought by relying on the resources and the supplies that the Egyptians might offer him. Bible trivia fact, by the way, this is the very first mention of Egypt in recorded scripture. And I pointed that out to say this, that... Of course, for you and I, perhaps, as we have read the rest of the story, we we know the rest of Genesis. We know what happens in Exodus. Egypt always sort of looms large as this menacing presence for the people of Israel. They are enslavers. They are the ones that they are constantly warned about not to seek out, not to get help from. You could even read about it in Isaiah chapter 31, this prophecy. You never go down to Egypt. That was sort of the command of, God's, of God to his people. 
But even here, we might have to recognize that Egypt's presence sort of hangs like a cloud over all that unfolds. And even still, though, Abraham didn't sort of harbor those same feelings. He didn't uh, perhaps look at them and, and note the, the fact that God never wanted them to re- resort to uh, getting help from them. This is a neighboring country in a time of great panic as a famine has devastated this land. He's not approaching them with the same sort of malice that we might have for them. Although, as we'll soon learn, he's well aware of their reputation. But I say all that to say this. As, as we, if you just read verse number 10, there's a famine in the land, and so he goes to sojourn in Egypt. It's hard to know, just by examining just that verse itself, whether or not this decision that Abraham makes to look to Egypt for help during this crisis is inherently a bad thing. We might automatically want to assume that it is, but I want to, uh, would like to contend that maybe not necessarily. Famines, of course, as we already noted, were devastating to societies and economies that were built up around agriculture. They were akin to death sentences. And as we've just read here in verse number 10, this was no ordinary famine as is described. It was severe in the land. This was no seasonal drought that had led to a little bit of a shortage of food. This, we might say, was a catastrophic famine, a catastrophic failure to have any sort of ability to survive on a massive scale. It is a it is truly something to, uh, to deem and describe as a crisis. Therefore, I w- would like to just step back. And as a, a man leading his household, I would not want to judge Abraham too quickly. He's making a decision to uh, keep his household alive. In his, in his sort of brain, as, as a man who is leading his house, he's saying the best way for us to survive this horrible, uh, this horrible crisis of this famine is to sojourn in Egypt. He's not moving there. He's not packing up and moving his address to Egypt. He's temporarily staying there, hoping to sort of wait out this famine and survive. And yet, by the same token, we have to ask the question, because it's a question that needs to be asked because of the rest of Scripture. Did God intend for him to look to Egypt for the help that he needed in this scenario? It's really hard to say. I don't want us to assume too negatively too quickly. Because the text is rather silent on that. It doesn't really give us, you could, if you, if you replaced Egypt with some other country, the story could read very much the same. But by the same token, all of Abraham's plans, they backfire royally. All of his plans, they don't succeed. And he ends up right back where he started at the very beginning of this whole thing, which sort of seems like enough of an answer. And consider all that Abraham had witnessed up to this point. All that he had experienced up to this juncture in his life. Abraham was a pagan. Living with pagans. Worshipping as a pagan. And yet God, at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12 of Genesis, God plucks him out of, that, uh, out of his homeland in Ur of the Chaldeans. And he chooses him to be who? The forefather, the, the founder, if you will, of the very nation that would spawn the savior of the world. <laughs> Abraham is living not as a God-fearer. He's 
One who has multiple gods that he worship, and yet God himself, Jehovah God, calls him out of all of that, and he calls him to follow him. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And surprisingly enough, Abraham follows this leading of the Lord on his life. Until, of course, he's brought to this land called Canaan, where God himself once again shows up. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar for the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, which with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. These two altars, he he builds one in Shechem where God first shows him this and then he builds another one in Bethel. These altars that he builds here are indicative of Abraham's faith and Abraham's trust in this Lord God Jehovah who is giving him this word of promise, who is leading he and his family into this new phase of history. And although this land, as we've just read, wasn't his yet, we have this amazing moment of Abraham's belief and trust in what the Lord told him. That no, it doesn't belong to you yet. This land will belong to your descendants. It'll belong to your offspring. And yet on the heels of all of that, Abraham receiving this call of the Lord, receiving and believing and this promise from God himself... All of that is put to the test. Why? Because, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. Specifically, the land of promise. Now put yourself in Abraham's sandals. The very land that God had just promised would be yours, that would belong to you and all of your offspring, is now greatly threatened by this natural catastrophe. The promise is perhaps still ringing in Abraham's ears and already is being put into jeopardy. Already there's evidence of how that could not be true. Abraham's faith is being tested. Yes, it's a natural disaster. It's a a catastrophe that's affecting a lot of people. But this famine is, is a representation of a true test of Abraham's faith. I think it's also very revealing Of a theme that will be uh, uh, very noticeable throughout the rest of scripture. Primarily we can think of it like this. That God rarely gives his people a promise without following that promise up with some sort of trial. And this is not because God likes to see us squirm. God doesn't like to see his people suffer or struggle. That's, That's not what God delights in. But God does desire that we trust him and not just the benefits that we get from him. He desires that we trust him alone. Yes, so that we trust him and call out to him no matter what the circumstances look like. Even... When things are at their bleakest or at their darkest, that's his desire that we call out on him. We call on his name. This, it would seem, is what Abraham is learning right here in this moment. 
Again, he's being put through the school of hard knocks. And he's being shown what his faith looks like. Which, at this juncture, is not really the toughest of stuff. This is not the Abraham of Genesis 22, where he is being asked to offer up his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah. This is decades before that. So you have to think about this, this, this idea that Abraham is being tested in his faith. But more, I think, importantly, he's being shown how God is faithful as well. So they have this plan. They're going to go to Egypt. They're going to get some resources. They're going to survive this famine. And as they do, as Abraham is there, they're approaching the gates of Egypt, this Egyptian border. Abraham suddenly turns to her and he reveals that they have another problem that doesn't really include the lack of food. Notice his problem as he describes it. Verse 11, when they were about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abraham's problem is that his wife was too beautiful. His wife was just too gorgeous. That's going to, babe, you're a babe. That's going to get us in in a mess. Because I've heard about what these Egyptians do. And I fear that they're going to take one look at you. They're going to want you for themselves, which means I'm going to get whacked. That's, that's his thought process. And before you use this on your Valentine's Day card, like, you know, you're so beautiful, I'm going to get murdered. Like, don't, maybe don't use that. But Abraham is not really giving Egypt the benefit of the doubt. So that's one thing that we have to say. He's not giving them much credit for having any sort of decency or decorum or anything like that. So he's making an assumption automatically. Oddly enough, Abraham's assumption turns out true. <laughs> After Look at verse 14. They arrive in Egypt. Some of Pharaoh's men, they spot Sarah and they end up boasting. They praise her beauty to Pharaoh himself. Look at verse 14. It says, and when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. That literally means they were boasting about her appearance to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So, Abraham is, all of his worst fears come out true. Because apparently, Pharaoh's harem was not complete, uh, apparently, until, uh, until it included Sarah, the fairest of them all. Now, how Abraham knew this, not really sure. It's anyone's guess. Maybe he had heard that this had happened before. I guess the Egyptians' reputation preceded them. But regardless, the, the fact of the matter is, that what is at the core of what's happening? Abraham is making an assumption about what might happen. And then, and, and then that is leading him to take matters into his own hands in order to prevent what might happen from happening. Again, look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife... I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will say, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So rather than introduce Sarah as his beautiful hot wife, he says, you're just going to be my beautiful hot sister. And this is a half truth, by the way. 
Because they, 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 share, they share a common father though through different mothers. So he's, he's sort of right. He's technically right. Well, technically she's my cousin slash sister. The thought was, I guess, we can, this is just sort of surmising from the text, that as a brother, Abraham could defend his sister's honor. Since, you know, an eldest brother would be a line of defense from his younger sister's potential suitors. That's sort of what some people believe is going on here. They interpret it like that. That Abraham is actually not doing anything deceitful at all. He's not doing anything wrong at all. He's just, he's not really lying, technically. He's just sort of protecting information in order to protect his household. And I think, though, at least how I read this text... I think that kind of misses the point. Because I think, especially when you realize that this plan really only has one, it really only benefits one person. Abraham. And notice, notice the repeated, I'm going to read verses 11 through 13 again. And notice the phrase that's repeated throughout this plan. So when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because you, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Who's benefiting from this conceit? Abraham. It's a plan that benefits Abraham. He's making this assumption, it's leading him to make this conspiracy out of self-preservation. And maybe he justified it and he said to himself, this is the only option. This is the only way out of this mess that we're going to find ourselves in. This is the only way that I, the only way that I can stay devoted to you as my wife is that I have to say that you're my sister. And you can see the wheels turning. He's trying to justify this whole situation. And the way that he wanted to stay devoted to his God is to sort of not tell a lie, but not really tell the whole truth. And glaringly absent from this whole scene, I think what is most obvious, glaringly absent from this whole episode, is any moment where Abraham stops and seeks the counsel of the Lord. We never see him pause. We never see him pray for divine wisdom or help throughout this whole scenario. He never just takes a moment and breathes and asks God for how to handle this. He never waits on the word of the Lord. Instead, what? He is relying on his own wit, on his own wisdom to get out of this whole thing. He's choosing to trust in his own ingenuity instead of God's ability to provide and to protect. This is Father Abraham right here in this text. And his wife, or for her part, Sarah, she doesn't really say anything at all this whole time. And so it's hard to know whether you know, she was a part of this plan or just going along with it because her husband was so insistent. If I had to wager, I'd bet on the last thing. <laughs> But regardless, as we already saw, Abraham's worst fears, they come true. As he is forced to watch as his wife is escorted to Pharaoh's house. Again, verse 15, and let this sink in. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
Abraham's plans have just, poof, gone up in smoke. This whole, you're my sister thing, could not have dwindled faster. Likely because Pharaoh could not have cared less about Sarah's honor, let alone Abraham's dignity. He's the king of Egypt. He'll take whoever and whatever he well pleases. In one look at Sarah, and he's like, I got to have that person. So they, she is fetched for him. And that leaves Abraham what? He's just holding a bill of sale, so to speak, for a bunch of cattle. Look at verse 16. And for her sake, so because of Sarah, the Pharaoh deals well. It says dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You get what's going on? And this sort of... <laughs> Frustrating but ironic and twisted irony. The result of all of Abraham's planning and scheming, it leaves him holding the dowry from Pharaoh for the right to marry his quote-unquote sister. He's holding the gift that the king wanted to give him in order for the right to say, I want to marry your sister. And all he's done is swap his wife's purity and his marriage's integrity in order to save his own skin. Imagine what Abraham was feeling like in that moment. I think this is what happens when our faith faints and fails and we fail to trust in God's person and in God's promise. Life's troubles, they have a way of doing that, don't they? You're facing something that is seemingly insurmountable and it's unnerving. It rattles us. It shakes us to our core. And it doesn't matter if the crisis is big or small, whether it's on a national scale or very immediate and very personal. That doesn't really matter. But so long as we fail to trust in the Lord, we will soon be overtaken by disappointment and doubt and even, yes, despair. When we... Presume the worst instead of clinging to what God has declared that quickly leads to this menace known as unbelief. And you see, I think that was Abraham's chief problem. Abraham's chief problem wasn't his wife's beauty, nor was it the Egyptians' apparent impropriety. His greatest transgression wasn't even this deceitful scheme that he comes up with to try and get out of this. It was the fact that he didn't seemingly believe that the God who had called him would be the same God to protect and provide for him. Instead, he has to, he has to take matters into his own hands. He has to come up with his own way to get out of this whole mess. And again, before we rush to judge poor old father Abraham, perhaps we should consider how often we, like, we are like him. How quickly do we resort to self-preservation when faced with an insurmountable crisis? How often are we prone to taking matters into our own hands when it seems as if God is not? How often do we give ourselves over to doubt and distrust distrust when it appears as if God's words are a little bit too fragile? Actually, I would say if we're honest with ourselves, we are very much and very frequently just like Abraham. We too have the word of God's promise 
which tells us he's coming again to make all things new. That's what we have in this Bible. It's not just a book of history as we talked about in several instances and in several different occasions. This is a book of revelation. It's a book of hope. It's a book of promise. Every single line in this Bible has behind it the promises of God that are, yes, still true for you and I here this morning. And the one that comes to mind is this promise that he's going to come again and make everything new. As he says in John chapter 14, Jesus himself If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Or the promise that he says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pause. How often do those words actually look like they're true? How often do those words actually fill us with hope and peace and security and certainty? Actually, I think much like Father Abraham, we take, who took one look at the gates of Egypt and he took matters into his own hand and says, I got I to gotta come up with my own way to get out of this. We too, I think, are guilty of looking at the state of our world, the state of our society, and we too fall prey to that menace of unbelief. <laughs> You watch the news. You scroll Facebook. I know that you do. You read the headlines. (laughs) There's lots of stuff going on. It's not all good. It's not all decent. Actually, it leaves a lot for us to be worried about. A lot for us to be concerned about. A lot for us to be sometimes duped into thinking. Even, yes, perhaps even for a moment. Perhaps even longer than moments. And maybe this whole coming again thing. Man, I don't know. Maybe this whole making all things new thing that God's been talking about. I just don't see how that's going to happen. And yet, the word of God's promise never fails. And no matter what You can be sure that no matter what Washington says or Harvard says or Hollywood says, no matter what they do or think or say, it can never threaten what God has promised from before the foundation of the world. Never. It can never even threaten it for a nanosecond. (laughs) And the point is, you and I... I mean, I hate to be Debbie Downer this morning. You are probably going to face more hardship and heartache in the year ahead than you care to imagine. In the years ahead, even. I'm not going to be this happy, clappy preacher and say, if you just believe, everything's going to work out. (laughs) I'm not going to predict that. Because more often than not, there's probably going to be difficulty. And trouble. And sorrow. And frustration. More crises, whether big or small. Some of, those, some of those plans, some of those troubles may even be so severe that we can begin to doubt what God has said. But the point I want to encourage you with this morning is that when that happens, our hope is the same as Abraham's. 
And that's because our God is the same as Abraham's. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who keeps his word from everlasting to everlasting. Even if that means he has to, uh, has to intervene, intervene and intercede himself. Which is what we're about to celebrate come Christmas time. It's the intervention of God in order to keep his word. To be sure, in a way, this is exactly what happens for Abraham back in our scene in Egypt. Again, if you remember, Abraham has just been given a bunch of donkeys, even though he probably felt like the donkey. (laughs) And then what happens? Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Notice that phrasing. Who's getting involved? Who's going to get his hand in a mess in order to make sure his promises stay true? God. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. Pharaoh's house is suddenly struck with this plague and it's not really sure what that means. Could just be an illness or virus. I like to imagine it as a horrible case of food poisoning in Pharaoh's belly right as he was bringing Sarah upstairs. (laughs) But regardless, no matter what, somehow or another, Pharaoh learns what's been going on. He suddenly is able to realize whether, who knows how it happened. He's suddenly able to understand that this person that he has in his house now is not Abraham's sister. It's his wife. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh appears somewhat offended by this fact that Abraham felt the need to come up with this plan in the first place. What the heck, man? What are are you doing telling me she's your sister? So then after clearing everything up, Pharaoh sent them both away. In 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 a way, I want you to read verse 20 as a gift of grace. Notice, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, meeting Abraham, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He gets to keep the dowry. He gets to keep all of the resources that Pharaoh had gifted him. And more than that, they get to go away scot-free with a royal escort out of town. The very people that had really just Showing a lot of disgrace to Pharaoh and coming up with this lie and coming up with this ruse and trying to pull a fast one on him. It, it, even despite all of the disgrace that he had been shown, how does Pharaoh respond? <laughs> He's Pharaoh. He could have retaliated however he wanted. But instead, he lets them go free. And Abraham ends up going back to Canaan. Yes, with his proverbial tail between his legs ashamed as he rightly should be and he finally does what he should have done the whole time look at verse verse 1 of chapter 13 so abram went up from egypt and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the negeb now abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold and he journeyed on from negeb as far as bethel notice that to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between bethel and ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. 
This whole, this whole little excursion into Egypt ends with Abraham right back to where he began. In Bethel, on his knees, in front of an altar of God, calling upon the name of God, on the receiving end of the unmerited favor of God. Only now, he's a little more humble and a lot more honest with who he is than he was before. Because he's just learned firsthand how needy he is, how desperate he is for God's words to fill him and guide him and settle him. This is a man who is profoundly changed, I think, at this point. And indeed, there's going to be other instances where this is true too. But in the progress of faith, Abraham is shown that even when he is faithless, his God is faithful. It's not by accident, I think, that this scene down in Egypt is sandwiched between two other scenes of Abraham calling upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 13, verse 4. It's through his failure, I think. And through this fit where his faith faints. I think that's where we're able to understand what it looks like to live by faith and not by sight, as we are told by the Apostle Paul. This life, it bombards us often not. More often than not than with circumstances that trouble us and headlines that disturb us and news stories that frustrate perhaps even what we believe. And even though we know that God's word is true, we are so prone to distraction. We are so prone to being distracted by all the things going on. And all of that distraction does is feed our doubt. And when we give in to doubt, we become preoccupied with the troubles and the trials that are all around us. And even the trials and the troubles that are still yet ahead of us. And the quicker and the more often that those troubles capture our attention, the sooner we are overtaken again by unbelief. That's sort of what's going on with Abraham. And I would say that's similar to what's going on in all of our lives at one point or another. What can we do to stop this vortex of distrust and unbelief from getting a stranglehold on us? What's the solution? Where do we turn? Unlike Abraham, we don't uh, turn to our own ingenuity, to our own insight, to our own intellect in order to make that happen. Instead, what? God invites us to call on his name. (laughs) He welcomes, God does, every feeble, fickle heart to trust that he's the God who keeps his word regardless, even when we don't. And yes, even in the crater of our own faithlessness, that very same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is there with us, embracing us in unending faithfulness. His ability to fulfill His promises and live up to what He says is going to happen eclipses all of our frailty, all of our flaws, and all of our failures. And no, we may never be able to shake off our shortcomings. 
Or overcome those fits of, of time when our, our, our faith faints. I have to warn you, your faith might fail in the future. You might find yourself in the immediate or in the far off future exactly like Abraham. Trying to take matters into your own hands. Yet even still, the God of all is faithful to all of his words. And he's there. He is available to you. He is the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an open invitation to call on the name of the Lord. That's what this offering of the gospel invites us to see. You have an open invitation to rely on the one who is sovereignly overwatching all of, of life and history unfold. God has never once been caught off guard. That was a phrase that stuck with me through that year that we shall not name in, in 2020. It was this awesome phrase that yes, none of these things surprise God. None of these things catch him off guard. None of these things make him squirm or wring his hands. God is the faithful God, both then with Abraham and now and forever. And he invites us to fall on him, to rest on him with all that we have and all that we are. And when fear and doubt and Uncertainty when they come up in our lives and they, they seem to assault us and assail us. What is our only hope? What is our only recourse? What is the only place where we can find true peace and security and safety? It is, my friends, the faithful and the dependable and the unfailing word of God that remains our only assurance. It's the words of God's promise. It's this book that you have in front of you. It's not just words. They are words which reveal and invite us to see exactly who God is. He's a God who always keeps his word. Always. No matter what frustrates us or what crisis comes our way. You have a God who is faithful from everlasting to everlasting. My friends, that's your only hope. Let us pray.